please turn your Bibles to Acts, Acts chapter 22, as we continue to make our way through this book, and as you turn there, just encourage you, we'll be partaking of the Lord's Supper together as a community of faith at the end of of service, and so uh, just so you know, if you're new to the church, the Lord's table at Bethany is open to all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, we encourage you to, to be a part of a, a local church, but you don't have to be a part of Bethany Community Church to partake of the Lord's Supper. And so if you didn't grab this little uh, little packet of uh, the, the cup and the, the bread, you may do so when we stand here in just a moment to, to read God's word together. We're in Acts chapter 22, and we're going to be looking at this passage, Acts 22, verse 23, through verse 11 of chapter 23, uh, this week and next. And so we'll begin looking at that this morning. And so if you're able to, if you'd stand with me in honor of the Lord as we read his word together. Remember, Paul has just given his defense to the Jews in Jerusalem, this, this mob that is furious with him. And they had been listening to him until he says these words in verse 21, Paul quoting Jesus, he said to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles and up to this word. They listened to him, then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And then we pick up here in verse 23. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen." So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, and that he had had him bound. But on the next day, Desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you, revile the God's, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And we had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or angel spoke to him? 
And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this this scripture. We're thankful for your son Jesus, and we pray that we also will be faithful to testify to the truth about your son Jesus Christ in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in all areas of our life. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we're in a new section of the book of Acts, and we're talking really in the, the coming months about the gospel witness to the, to the government as it interacts with the powers that be. And what we're going to be looking at this week and next is the, the gospel and, and the, or God's people in a political world. As we talk about the gospel and the government, God's people in a political world. We'll be looking at this passage this week and, and next. And, and I want to take a moment and kind of explain what I mean by, by a, a couple of things here. The word politics comes from the Greek. Uh, Polis is the Greek word for city. Uh, Politica refers to uh, the affairs of the state. And and whenever we use the word politics in our culture today, sometimes we use that, that phrase in a very broad way. Very broadly, politics simply refers to how decisions are made by a group of people. And so maybe this morning you'd say, you know, I am not interested in politics. I have no interest in the midterms in November. In fact, I don't even know what the midterms are. I have no intention of really getting involved in political discussions. Those, those topics don't interest me. And, and that, that's fine. That may be true of you. But the Greeks, who are the founders of political philosophy, uh, once said this, that man, all men, are political animals. In other words, we are, are beings who have the ability to, to think and to reason, and we inevitably use our ability to think and reason to persuade others to do what we want in the different situations we find ourselves in. So maybe you don't care about the, the midterms in 2022 or presidential elections or governor elections or even city councils, but I would imagine there are some groups that you're a part of where you care about the decisions that are being made very much. Maybe you're part of a, a group at work and you kind of have a, a strong opinion on how vacation policy is implemented. Or maybe you're a part of a family. Maybe you're a young person here this morning and you're already kind of thinking about lunch in a little bit. And, and you know that, that mom has a chicken casserole uh, planned for lunch and, and you are not a fan of chicken casserole. And, and you're thinking about it even as I'm talking. You're like, you know what? Pizza. Maybe we can get some pizza today. And maybe I can talk to my brother. And my brother and I, brother's always a favorite, brother and I can convince mom and dad for, for pizza in a little bit. You're, you're part of some group, and that, that's, that's kind of politics. You're part of some group, and, and you want to influence the decisions that are being made. Or you want to prevent decisions being made that you disagree with. All of us are political animals. I think the Greeks were right. We care about the decisions that are made in the groups of which we find ourselves. Now Luke is turning to a new section in the book of Acts. He's going to be talking about how this this 
gospel witness interacts with the state, with the the Roman government. And he's going to be talking about how Paul uses his ability to influence decisions being made that he desires to be made. He's going to, to talk with us here about how Christians interact with a world that is inevitably political. Because like Paul, many of the groups that we are a part of do not love the Lord. We don't live in a society that is committed to living under the reign of of King Jesus. And so how do we, who are committed to living in Christ's kingdom first and foremost, how do we interact with with a world that, that doesn't love God? How do we use our ability to influence people around us for the sake of the gospel? How how do we use that in a way that glorifies God? That's some of what we're going to be talking about this week, next week, and and even in some some future weeks. Here's the main idea that I want us to think about. As we think about how God has placed us here and and called us to engage this society with the gospel, here's kind of the central idea that I want us to see in this text. Our status in this kingdom, we'll see, enables us to proclaim the gospel of Christ's kingdom. So where we find ourselves right now, and by status I mean our rights, our privileges, our our positions of influence, the status that we have in whatever group we're a part of, that's something that God has given us to enable us to proclaim the gospel of Christ's kingdom. We want to be bold and wise as we do that. We're going to talk over the next two weeks, kind of about three areas, three areas we see in these verses that are areas in in which we need to think biblically about being in a political world. So here's the first area, the first topic that I want us to think about, and that's the idea of positions of privilege. We are in positions of privilege. How do we think about that biblically? That word privilege, of course, is a a word that has a a lot of heat today. And what I want to say by by privilege is simply that we have status, we have rights because of where we were born or what we've accomplished, and we need to think biblically about what do we do when we find ourselves in situations where we have privilege, where we have status, where we have influence. Let's, Let's look at the text. See what I mean. Remember where we ended. We ended with, with Paul, and he's just said these words. He said, uh, go, he's quoting Jesus again, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then there's a response to those words. Now, I'm sure some of you have given presentations before that, that didn't go the way that you wanted them to go, right? Uh, I've talked with pastors, and oftentimes pastors will tell me, man, every week I just feel like I, I don't communicate all that I desire to communicate. I, I see so much in the text, and so I'm, I'm trying to communicate all these things that are in the text. I, I just can't quite get it all out there. And at the end of the day, I feel very discouraged. And even on those days where I feel like I'm at least getting like 50% of the things that I, I want to say out there, personally, I, I can feel at the, at the end of the, the day, like still, even though I was communicating what I wanted to communicate, I wasn't always communicating it the way that I wanted to communicate it. Uh, people weren't always responding in the way that I wanted them to respond. There were distractions, whatever. There's kind of a sense of disappointment sometimes in the way that people respond to a, a presentation we give, right? My worst Sunday has never gone as bad as what happens with Paul here, right? 
Paul finishes speaking. Now, let's, let's think about this from the perspective of the tribune. This, this guy's name is Claudius Lysias. We're going to see his name in the, in the next chapter. This tribune, this remember, he's a military official. He has maybe a 1,000 people under his soldiers, under his control, his influence here. And, and he has rescued Paul from the mob of the Jews. And he rescues Paul, and he's trying to bring him into the barracks, and Paul says, hey, do you mind if I say a few words to the crowd? And Claudius Lysias thinks, you know what? There's an easy way and a hard way to do this. Maybe this would be the easy way. Maybe I'll let Paul, this guy, say a few words, and and he'll communicate some things, clear up some misunderstandings, and I can still get back into the barracks in time for a nap and a lunch or something like that. And so he steps back, and he says, go ahead, and, and Paul begins talking. Now, Lysias can't understand what Paul is saying. Paul is speaking in Aramaic, and so uh, the, the, the Lysias doesn't have the ability to understand what is being said, and so he's, he's speaking there in Aramaic, and, and as, as, he, as he talks, the crowd is listening, and Lysias thinks, oh, this, this, this is going better than I, th- I thought it might, and so maybe this is all going to be resolved, and Lysias watches the crowd, and all of a sudden, the crowd loses their mind. It says here that they're, they're shouting they, they're tearing off their garments. They're prepared for violence. They're throwing dust in the air. This is not a good reception to Paul's defense. And, again, think about this from the perspective of Lysias. I tried the easy way. I guess we'll, we'll try the hard way. Time for plan B, good old-fashioned flogging. And so he, he says, you know what? We tried it your way, Paul. Uh, and he tells the centurion, why don't you take this guy and let's ask some questions using your whip. And the centurion says, okay. And so the tribune, that's verse 24, he orders Paul to be brought in the barracks and he'll be examined by flogging to find out what was the deal. Paul, what did this guy Paul say that was so offensive that he is attacked not just once, but twice? What is he saying? What's in his communication that is so offensive and so incendiary that people are responding this way? I'd kind of like to figure out what's going on. So he says to the centurion, take some guys, do your thing. And the centurion says, yes, sir, and takes them away, right? Look at verse 25. They stretch him out. They bring the whips. And Paul asks the centurion a, a very simple question. He says, I just want to make sure we're on good legal standing here. Is it lawful for you to do this to a Roman citizen? And the centurion realizes we have a problem here, right? There's this act that is about to be engaged in as as an act of humiliation. Whenever I was in in junior high, uh, we were never whipped in school, but we we were swatted. And so the the coaches would, would take you to the coach's office if you got in trouble in athletics or football or track or something. And if you were in trouble, they'd take you to the coach's office and you'd walk in there and all the coaches would be in there and then there'd be some, uh, you know, some what they thought were funny comments about you being in there. And, and um, you know, comments, I, mean, I walk in sometimes and they say, you, what are you, what did you do, Bennett? You know, and I, talking. Oh, that makes sense. And so they, they you know, you have to uh, remove uh, as many layers between you and the paddle as possible, and then you know, swing back and, and you know, swatch a little bit. And it was, it was really embarrassing, right? It, was kind of an embar- it wasn't as humiliating as what's was going on here, but there was this sense of, of powerlessness, of, of people in positions of authority punishing you. It was, it was humiliating, right? Well, the, what is true for a junior high student is, is far more true. Here's this adult male being, 
being uh, taken by the centurion and these, these Roman guards, and they have the ability to do whatever they want with him, and they're going to begin to whip him. It's painful physically. It's painful emotionally as well. And so Paul asks this simple question. Have a question. Uh, is this legal? You're about to flog a guy who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned. Just want to make sure we're on the same page here. You're cool with this. And the centurion goes, I'll be right back. He goes, he talks to, to Lysias, and he says, Lysias, um, what, are you, what are you thinking? Th- this guy's a Roman citizen. And Lysias says, we have a problem. You, you kind of feel bad for Lysias. Lysias' day just keeps getting worse and worse. He, he can't bring order to the situation here. And so he goes back to Paul, verse 27. He says, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul gives the affirmative answer, yes, he responds. And, and the, word, the words that are used there in verse 27, it's this, it's this formal declaration. Paul is saying, yes, I am. And the question might be, well, why doesn't anyone just kind of say they're a Roman citizen and get out of whipping? And the reason is to lie about your Roman citizenship carried a severe penalty as well. And Paul is able to perhaps even prove his Roman citizenship Paul might have been carrying a, a diploma, this hinged tablet that showed that he was a register of, of, of Rome. But whatever the, the case, he can prove he's a Roman citizen. Now, the tribune, the centurion, are on very shaky legal grounds right now. You want to take a Jew? Ask him some questions with a whip for a little while? Not a problem. You want to do that to a Roman citizen, an uncondemned Roman citizen? Problem. Why? Because Roman citizens had rights. They had status. They had privilege. So the tribune is surprised at this. And he tells Paul, he says, well, you know, I, I, I had to purchase my, my Roman citizenship, and so probably what the tribune is saying, I had to find a guy that could get me on a list that would go before the emperor for the emperor to approve. Now, to find the right guy cost me money. To get my name on that list cost me even more money. To make sure that it got to the emperor cost me more money still. And so there was this, this hefty financial price that I had to pay in order to get my name before the emperor and be approved as, as a Roman citizen. This, this was not an easy thing for me to do. And Paul says, well, that's, that's uh, you know, hard on you, me by birth. Now, we don't know exactly uh, Paul's family lineage and, and who was a Roman citizen, how that took place with, with his father or whatever, but we know that it's true that he was born a Roman citizen. He has that, that right from birth. And what happens it said, it's verse 29, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And Lysias is pretty nervous now. Because not only had he been about to, to beat this guy, he's bound him. And he's a Roman citizen. Now, here, here's what I want us to, to think about. Here's the point. Paul has status. He has rights, he has has privilege, whatever word you want to use. He has something that other people do not. The random person in that crowd of of Jews, that that mob that could have been picked up 
taken away, beaten, no problem. Not Paul. Why? Because he has privilege. He has status. Now, when he is in front of the mob of Jewish people, he also has some privileges. He has some clout. And he uses it then, too. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I was trained under Gamaliel. I was a strict Pharisee. He talks about the privileges that he has when he's with whatever group he's with. When he's with the crowd of the Jews, he doesn't mention, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. Not the time. As he appears before the centurion is about to get whipped, he doesn't mention, by the way, I am an expert in the Hebrew law. They don't care, but he does mention Roman citizen. That has status and privilege with that group. Paul uses the privileges that he has in the context in which it will serve him. He uses it. But the question is, why? Why does he use his privilege? As I mentioned earlier, that that word privilege is kind of a hot word today, a word that kind of evokes a lot of emotions. It's, it's frequently used in some very heated conversation. The, 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 the phrase privilege was used, or the word privilege was used in 1998 in an article by Peggy McIntosh. The, and this is kind of the article that some people point to as kind of beginning the word privilege in the sense that our society often thinks of it today. Her, here's the article title that she wrote. White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. And, and in that article, she talked about the different advantages that she believed that, that white uh, individuals in our culture have uh, simply by being of uh, that, ethnic, uh, that, that ethnicity. Now, then in the 2000s, the phrase, check your privilege, kind of became popular on uh, different social media sites, different blogs, different articles. And Check your privilege was kind of a, a term, a phrase that people used to, to tell white people or men or whatever group they wanted to say, hey, you need to consider the privileges that you have in culture because of how you were born or where you find yourself in life. You need to, to recognize you have privilege, right? That's, you've heard that phrase, check your privilege, check your privilege. Now, there became a backlash to that in our culture, right? To where some people were saying, okay, uh, because the, there was kind of an implicit accusation in, in those articles. It wasn't just think about the fact that you have privilege, but the implicit accusation some was like by simply having privilege, you're abusing your privilege or you're inherently trying to perpetuate an unjust system or you're actually harming people because of your privilege. That was kind of implicit in that, right? You, I'm sure you remember that. Then there was kind of a backlash to that where people who were of whatever a group was being accused of having uh, privilege and, and abusing it. White men or whoever were saying, no, 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 uh, uh, we, we're not guilty simply by, by being who we are. That doesn't, that doesn't automatically condemn you. And then some of the defenses went even further. They said, no, we don't even have privilege. What are you talking about? Or they said, we're not the ones with privilege. You're the ones with privilege. We're not the ones abusing our privilege. You are the ones abusing your privilege. And I don't know if you've had access to the internet, but uh, the, the conversations often got very heated and lots of accusations thrown around and often more uh, heat than light, right? So here's, here's Daniel Bennett's hot take, right? I'm sure, uh, I'm sure that's what you've came, come here for. But, but here's, um, here's my thought. You know, if, if you've got access to the internet, 
and time to be writing articles about privilege, you're probably a person of privilege, right? You, you probably have, in terms of comparing yourself to the entire history of humankind and the resources that most people have had, if you have access to running water, electricity, and can spend time thinking about privilege, you're probably in a pretty good place in life, right? I have no doubt that I am in a pretty good situation in our society, in the world, because of where I was born, because of who my parents are, because of the access and to education that I've had. I have some pretty, pretty cool privileges. Now, is that inherently sinful? If, you know, if you're an American citizen, you have a passport that allows you to travel to 186 destinations throughout the world without even asking for a visa. You have hundreds of, of embassies and, and consulates throughout the world that are designed to protect you and your rights as you travel. You have some privilege. So how do we think about that biblically? Okay? We don't want to be those who deny that we have privilege, and we don't want to be those who say, well, simply by having privilege, you've, you've done something unjust. Here, here's some biblical thoughts, I think, as we consider privilege from a, from, a, from a missional perspective. One, it's not sinful to have privilege, right? It's not sinful. These are a couple of biblical principles. It's not sinful to have privilege or status or whatever word you want to use. We don't reproach the person of low standing. We don't reproach the person of high standing. We simply acknowledge that there, there are different people who have access to different privileges in the world, right? We acknowledge that and having or not having access to certain resources doesn't inherently make us uh, guilty of, of a sin. There's an apocryphal story of a woman who was born of uh, aristocratic birth, and she said to someone, she goes, I was saved by the letter M. And, and someone asks, what, what do you mean you're saved by the letter M? And she says, well, 1 Corinthians 1.26, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. She says, I'm glad the word M is there, right? She says, otherwise, it would say not any of you were of noble birth. You know, in other words, God calls people from all different walks of life, all different stratas of the different cultures, and it's not inherently sinful to have privilege. Number two, another biblical principle here, it's not sinful, we see in Scripture, to use privilege to protect ourselves and others, to prevent injustice. That's not sinful to do. We have the ability to use our influence to help good things to take place. That's not an evil thing to do. Paul would say this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, talking to people who are wealthy and powerful in society. He said, Timothy, in your pastoral ministry, instruct these wealthy people to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they Make may, uh, make may take hold of that which is life indeed. And over and over again, we see Paul using his privilege to, to, to save himself and others from being victims of injustice. injustice. A third principle, a privilege is not to be used to harm, mistreat, or ignore the needs of others. So privilege is not to be used to harm, to mistreat, or to ignore others. We cannot be deceived in whatever situation we find ourselves in in life 
and believe that we somehow deserve any privilege we have. Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? A heart of entitlement is a heart that's denying the truth of the gospel, which says, I I deserve nothing except eternal punishment for my sin, and it is only the grace of God that is freely given to me by his son Jesus Christ that I have access to, to anything, most importantly, eternal life. But the heart of entitlement says, I kind of deserve what I have. The, the privileges that I have, I, you know, I'm not the guy that deserves to be at the back of the line. My proper place is at the front, or at least pretty close to the front, right? That's the heart of entitlement. Hannah and Parker were telling us about their, their honeymoon and, and just the, the, how much enjoyment they had of the place that they stayed. And they said uh, it, was, it was kind of intimidating at first how how nice the amenities were. It said there was, there was uh, someone who came and cleaned the room, and there was like a little button you could press whenever you're out, and, and someone would, would bring you food and stuff like that. And they said at the very beginning, it was, it was kind of, again, intimidating. Like Hannah said that she would clean before she knew that someone was going to come in to, to clean the room because she didn't want them to have to do anything. And uh, they would kind of debate, should we press a button? Do we don't press a button? I don't know. I don't want to trouble anybody. And uh, Parker said it was, it was amazing how quickly, or he said it was, it was amazing how quickly you can become used to it and, and foster a heart of entitlement. You know, like it's, it's not a hard thing to do. So like by the end of the week, it's like, hey, the maid hasn't been here yet. What's the deal? Or, you know, where's that drink I ordered? You know, what's, what's, what's happening here? It's, it's very easy for us to become entitled. And if you don't think that's true of you, if you don't think that's true of you, you are in a dangerous place spiritually. It is very, very easy for us to become entitled, to not recognize that we don't have anything that we deserve. All that we have is is a gift. It's easy to think, I deserve this this benefit at work. I I deserve these rights that I have, as opposed to say, look, I, I I don't deserve anything but hell. And everything that I have is simply the, the grace of God. And so I, I cannot use the things that I've been given to harm others, to mistreat others, or even to be ignorant of the needs that other people in my life have. A fourth principle here of privilege, privilege can't be where we find our hope. Privilege cannot be where we find our hope. It's not the foundation for our security. Paul, again, in First Timothy would say, in that same passage to, to Timothy, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So last principle here, as we think about being in a position of privilege, what is the point? Why do we have privilege? Why, why has God put some of us in a position where we have more influence than other people have? Our privilege is to be used to maximize our proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says about, as he's talking about his rights and his privileges, he would say this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 
He says, I, I, I'm free from all. So I have the ability to do all these things. But what, what has he done? He says, but I've made myself a servant to all. Why? That I might win more of them. That's his, his driving passion and his desire to win the loss for Christ. So to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being un- myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. And that should be our passion as well as we find ourselves in whatever situations of society we find ourselves. Do I have influence in this family? I'm using my influence in this family so that I can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to them and see them come to worship him. Do I have a position of influence at work? I'm using that position of influence at work not to advance my own interests, but to advance the interests of others so that they may know Jesus Christ. Paul is constrained by his privilege. He's constrained by his privilege because his privilege is a constraint on his actions so that he can use it for the maximizing of the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As you think through your unique opportunities, the unique positions that Christ has given you, you need to be constantly asking this, am I using this position at work, this position that I have with my friends at school, am I using this position that I have based on Am I using these these areas of influence I have to maximize my own glory or am I using these positions of influence in such a way that I'm maximizing the proclamation of the gospel? Until you see the things that you've been given by God in this light, you're going to be woefully ineffective in gospel ministry. Here's a second area I want us to think about. We've, we've talked about our, our positions of privilege. Now let's talk a little bit about people of power. People of power. That's, that's another area of Christians in the political world that we need to think about. Here's what happens next in the story. Again, this, this poor tribune, right? Poor Lysias. He's got this guy. Every chance he gets he keeps on stirring up trouble with these, these Jews. And, that, and now, Lysias finds out he's a Roman citizen. So he can't let him go, or things are going to get stirred up again. And he can't beat him because he's a Roman citizen. So, so what is he going to do? It says at the end of, of chapter 22 that Lysias wants to know why he keeps on making the Jews upset. What's he's being, what is he being accused of by the Jews? He unbinds him. He commands the chief priests and all the councils to meet. And so he brings Paul down and he sets them in front of them. This, this would have been, a, we'll talk more about this next week, but this, this is at least a, an unofficial meeting of the Sanhedrin, a group of Jewish rulers of, of both the scribes, Pharisees, the priests, the Sadducees, and he brings Paul in front of this group, and he sits him down. And here's his idea. I'll bring them to the Jews, and they can have this conversation, not with a mob, but with the rulers, and, and maybe we can find out exactly what's going on. And if you don't feel sorry for Lysias yet, 
Certainly you will in a few verses when Paul throws a couple hand grenades and everything starts going crazy. He takes Paul to the Jews. He sits them down. He brings them all together. And Paul looks at the council in verse 1. And Paul begins by pointing to his desire to, to walk in obedience to God. He says, I've, I've lived my life up to this point with, the, with the, trying to obey my conscience, to walk rightly before the Lord. And Ananias, the priest, the high priest, doesn't respond well to the statement. He orders Paul to be struck, to be struck on the mouth. For a Jew to be able to strike another Jew on the mouth in this setting was for that Jew to be saying to the other Jew, I, I think you're blaspheming God. It was an act of, of public shame. The words that are, are coming out of your mouth are, are, are lies and are an attack upon God and his glory. You're saying untrue things about God. And so as Ananias strikes Paul, again, it's not just a painful act physically. It's an emotionally uh, harmful thing for him to be doing here to Paul. Paul is not happy that he has been struck, and he has some very strong words to say in response. Look at verse 3 of chapter 23. He says, well, uh, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And then he talks about the hypocrisy of what's happening. You're sitting here to judge me according to the law. So I'm, I'm here before this group to be judged according to the Jewish law. And yet you, whoever ordered me struck, are acting contrary to the law. And there's hypocrisy there. You're a, a whitewashed wall. That phrase, whitewashed wall, Remember, Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, but it, it comes from Ezekiel 13. Paul, Paul's response here is understandable and he's correct. Ananias is not a good person. He's quick-tempered. He doesn't exercise justice. We know from other contemporary sources that he is corrupt. He's friendly with Rome. Paul is quoting here again Ezekiel 13.10 or alluding to that. When Ezekiel 13.10, Ezekiel writes this. The Lord says, Precisely because they have misled my people, saying, Peace when there is no peace, and because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash, say to those who smear the wall with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, verse 14, and I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground. And so to call someone a whitewashed wall was mean you're, would mean you're taking this wall that is decaying and you're trying to make it look nice. And so the whitewash hides the deterioration of the wall that it's, that it's, that it's, uh, that it's uh, painted on. Paul's words are actually going to prove to be prophetic. Ananias is going to fall. He's going to be killed by a zealot because the, the Jews find him to be a traitor. I think that happens about 10 years from the events here. But the irony is that someone who really is undermining Judaism is accusing Paul of undermining Judaism, and Paul, in fact, is speaking the truth about the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. Now, look at verse 4. Those around Paul say, look, do you know what you've done? Why are you reviling God's high priest? And Paul responds to their correction in verse 5. He says, look, I, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. And perhaps Paul doesn't know that Ananias is the high priest because he's been away. Perhaps it's his poor eyesight that doesn't allow him to understand who he's, he's talking to. But he quotes Exodus 22, Exodus 22, and, and affirms that he's not to speak evil of a ruler of your people. I'm not supposed to revile him. Now, now let's, let's pause there. We'll, we'll look at the rest of this 
this text next week. But let's talk about verses 30 through verse 5 here for a few minutes. Paul's words here aren't wrong in identifying that Ananias had violated the law, right? It seems that what he's admitting was wrong was the way in which he spoke to someone who's in a position of authority over him. It didn't show a proper submission to Ananias as high priest in the position that God had placed him. Now, he's being accused of violating the law by someone who's actively violating the law. It's not fair. It's not just. Paul recognizes his words weren't the right words to use in that context. Let's talk about a couple biblical truths. Some we've talked about before as we've gone through the book of Acts, but a couple biblical truths about us as we think about people who are in positions of power. So people of power, a couple things. Number one, we ultimately honor God as we honor people who are in power. Wives are told to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Children, you obey your parents in the Lord. First Peter chapter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so there's a lot of freedom for us in that. As we look at the people who are in positions of power over us, we're not asking ourselves, are these people worthy of me submitting to them? Instead, we're asking them, are they in a position in which God has placed them in authority over me? And if so, I need to honor them in that position as, as much as I'm able to do so. And so maybe you're a, a young person, there's mom and dad, and as you get older, you realize mom and dad know way less than you thought that they knew. Now, as you get older, you'll realize that it wasn't as less as you thought. But, you know, there's that period where you think, man, they, they know almost nothing. Um, but the, the good thing for you is that God has put them in a position of power over you, in a position of leadership over you. And so, as you're able to submit to them, you may disagree with the conclusions they reach, but as long as they're not asking you to do something that's violation of God's word or his truth, you need to obey them in it. So maybe all your friends have a cell phone and you think you should have a cell phone and mom and dad say, no, we're not going to do that because we think it wouldn't be wise for you to have that. You may really disagree. You may think mom and dad know nothing. They're so foolish. They don't understand. Doesn't matter, right? You're called to, to submit to them and not because mom and dad know everything, but because God has put them in that position and ultimately you're not honoring mom and dad. Ultimately, you're honoring God. Now, that's, that's one principle. Number two, we need to exercise caution. We need to exercise caution when speaking about people in positions of authority over us. Matthew 15, Jesus says this about what comes out of our mouths. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And, and Paul, what he's saying about Ananias isn't untrue. But he recognizes in the context in which he's in, this, these were not the right words for this moment. This is a person who's sitting in a position of prominence over him. He needed to, to not speak that way to Ananias in this situation. Now, there's some, some hard things to think about when we can say harsh words about rulers and, and when we can't and what we need to be motivated by is our, our heart's desire is not to uh, malign, not to slander 
but to, to speak truth in a, a God-honoring way. And so we need to be careful, exercise caution in our speech. Number three, we need to pray faithfully for our, our leaders. We think about this in, in, our, in relation to people of power. We, we pray faithfully for them, right? We pray for their salvation. We pray for their ability to, to do what God has called them to do. We pray for wisdom as they make very hard decisions. We pray for them to, to do what God has called them to do, to punish the evil, to protect the innocent. First Thessalonians 4, our ambition is to lead a quiet, peaceable life where we can do our work and worship God. And so we pray that God would provide us with leaders who'd help us in that. We, number four, a fourth principle here about how we respond to people in power is we look for ways to obey, not loopholes that allow disobedience, right? Our heart's desire is, Matthew 15, Jesus would, would rep, reprimand the Pharisees and scribes for obeying God and technically, but not with their hearts. And so we want to be careful that we're not, as we think about the people who are in positions of power over us, we're not saying, okay, I'm going to technically obey them, but my heart has no desire to do so. There's this great picture we have of, of one of our, our sons at a, a store that we were at in vacation. And you could tell we had just told him to stop touching things. You know, he'd been kind of playing with toys. But, hey, hey, stop Stop touching things with your hands. And, and the picture is this. His hands are behind his back, and his foot is reaching out, you know, <laughs> touching stuff. And he's, he's just kind of, like, as far as he can, just kind of reaching around and playing with it. Is that obedience? I guess technically, you know, we, we weren't able to. But it, the heart wasn't quite there in terms of doing what we had asked him to do. And then another principle here. We do, of course, disobey when God requires it. We ultimately obey God, but ult- uh, and sometimes that means disobeying people. One commentator said that the, the legal system of Rome has nothing to fear from Christianity, but I, I'd say yes and no. You know, our goal is always going to be for the good of our leaders, but sometimes the good of our leaders means that we're going to be allegiant to the, our allegiance is going to be to the Lord instead of them. We're going to undermine their authority as, as God's kingdom advances, and hopefully we'll bring them along with us, right? It's inevitable that we're going to sometimes be in, in disobedience to our leaders, and we need to be prepared to disobey in a loving, God-honoring, sovereign-honoring way. Maybe you saw this uh, quote this last week. It, it made its rounds in several places, but uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts said something that was just just terribly shocking and, and evil, right? She said this. She said, in Massachusetts right now, those crisis pregnancy centers, and she's talking about faith-based uh, crisis pregnancy centers that are designed to, to help women and, and their children who are uh, in need. She says, those, those crisis pregnancy centers that are there to fool people who are looking for pregnancy termination help outnumber true abortion clinics by three to one, we need to shut them down here in Massachusetts, and we need to shut them down all around the country. You should not be able to torture a pregnant person like that. Now, how do we respond to that? Well, we don't call her names. We don't mock her. In fact, here's some names we cannot call her. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we don't do that, right? We don't do that. We're like Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar or Darius. 
we're constantly working for her good and the, the good of other government officials. We are going to obey them when it's appropriate. We're going to disobey them when God calls them to. We're going to care for babies and their moms when it's legal. We're going to care for babies and their moms when it's illegal. And in fact, ironically, we are going to help Senator Warren and other politicians fulfill their God-given responsibilities, whether they desire to fulfill them or not, right? We're going to be faithful to that. That's our task, to lovingly help them fulfill what God has called them to do as we ultimately proclaim the gospel to people of power. We desperately want our public officials to hear the gospel and to create an environment where we can proclaim the gospel and do the things that God has called us to do. Not just politicians, but your parents, your governor, your boss. That's what we do with people in power. Now we'll talk more about that next week, how we do that and how we're wise and, and so forth. But, but here's, here's our conclusion, right? Our status in this kingdom enables us to proclaim the gospel of Christ's kingdom. It's not, it's not anything but the gospel that ultimately unites us. Here, the message that, that, that Paul is focused on is the gospel, and this morning it's, it's the same for us as well. And, and what I would pray that we would do is commit, by God's grace, to proclaim this, this message, to commit to proclaiming this message to the world, to use whatever status we have, to use whatever influence we have with people in power to advance the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel tells us this. The gospel tells us that all of us are separated from God because of our sin. We have failed both by our, our nature and by our choices. We are, are separated from God because of our sin. And the gospel tells us that God, recognizing, knowing our separation from him from eternity past, he, he sent his son Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins, to, raise, to be raised from the dead. And now we, because our sins have been paid for by Christ, we have the ability to come into relationship with God, not because of our own works, but because of the work of Christ. We can simply place our faith, our trust in him alone for our salvation. That's the message we want to proclaim. And when we have the ability to proclaim it, with whatever influence we have, we're going to use that influence to do so. Let's prepare 